Chapter Four of the Three Hostages by John Buchanan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four I Make the Acquaintance of a Popular Man. You may imagine how glad I was to see old Sandy again, for I had not yet set eyes on him since 1916. He had been an intelligence officer with Maud, and then something at Simola and after the war had an administrative job in mesopotamia or as they call it nowadays iraq he had written to me from all kinds of queer places but he never appeared to be coming home and what with my marriage and my settling in the country we seemed to be fixed in ruts that were not likely to intersect i had seen his elder brother's death mm -hmm. in the papers so he was now master clan royden and heir to the family estates but i didn't imagine that he would make a scotch lad of him i never saw a fellow less changed by five years of toil and travel he was desperately slight and tanned he had always been that but the contours of his face were still soft like girls and his brown eyes were merrier as ever we stood and stared at each other. Dick, old man, he cried, I'm home for good. Yes, honor bright, for months and months, if not years and years. I've got so much to say to you, and I don't know where to begin, but I can't wait now. I'm off to Scotland to see my father. He's my chief concern, for he's getting very frail, but I'll be back in three days. Let's dine together on Tuesday. We were standing at the door of a club, his and mine, and a porter was stowing his baggage into a taxi. Before I could properly realize that it was Sandy, he was waving his hand from the taxi window and disappearing up the street. The sight of him cheered me immensely, and I went on along Paul Mall in good temper. To have Sandy back in England and at call made me feel somehow more substantial like a commander who knows his reserves are near when i entered macgillivray's room i smiled and the sight of me woke an unanswered smile on his anxious face good man he said you look like business you're to put yourself at my disposal while i give you your bearings he got out his papers and expounded the whole affair it was a very queer story, yet the more I looked into it, the thinner my skepticism grew. I am not going to write it all down, for it is not yet time. It would give away certain methods, which have not yet exhausted their usefulness. But before I had gone very far, I took off my hat to these same methods, for they showed amazing patience and ingenuity. It was an odd set of links that made up the chain. There was an importer of Barcelona nuts with a modest officer near Tower Hill. There was a copper company purporting to operate in Spain whose shares were not quoted on the stock exchange, but which had a fine office in London Wall where you could get the best luncheon in the city. There was a respectable accountant in Glasgow a French count who was also some kind of highland lad 
and a great supporter of the White Rose League. There was a country gentleman living in Shropshire who had bought his place after the war and was a keen rider to hounds and a very popular figure in the country. There was a little office not far from Fleet Street, which professed to be the English agency of an American religious magazine, and there was a certain publicist who was always appealing in the newspapers for help for the distressed populations of Central Europe. I remember his appeals well, for I had myself twice sent him small subscriptions. The way MacGillivray had worked out the connection between these gentry filled me with awe. Then he showed me specimens of their work. It was sheer, unmitigated crime, a sort of selling a bear on a huge scale in a sinking world. The aim of the gang was money, and already they had made scandalous profits. Partly their business was mere consciousless profiteering, well inside the bounds of the law, such as gambling in falling exchanges and using every kind of brazen and subtle trick to make their gamble a certainty. Partly it was common fraud of the largest scale, but there were darker sides, murder when the victim ran athwart their schemes, strikes engineered when a wretched industry somewhere or another in the world showed symptoms of reviving shoddy little outbursts in shoddy little countries which increased the tangle these fellows were the wreckers on the grand scale merchants of pessimism giving society another kick downhill whenever it had the chance of finding its balance and then pocketing their profits their motive as i have said was gain but that was not the motive of the people they worked through their cleverness lay in the fact that they used the fanatics, the moral imbeciles, as McElvery called them, whose key was a wild hatred of something or another, or a reasoned belief in anarchy. Behind the smug exploiters lay the whole dreary wastes of half-baked craziness. Mount Gilberay gave me examples of how they used these tools, the fellows who had no thought of profit and were ready to sacrifice everything, including their lives, for a mad ideal. It was a masterpiece of cold-blooded, devilish ingenuity, hideous and yet comic, too, for the spectacle of these feverish cranks toiled to create a new heaven and a new earth in thinking themselves the leader of mankind when they were dancing like puppets at the free will of a few scoundrels engaged in the most ancient of pursuits there was an irony to make the gods laugh i asked who was their leader that giveaway said he wasn't certain no one of the gang seemed to have more authority than the others and their activities were beautifully specialized but he agreed that there was probably one mastermind and said grimly that he would know more about that when they were rounded up. The doc will settle that question. How much do they suspect? I ask. Not much. 
a little, or they would not have taken hostages. But not much, for we have been very careful to make no sign. Only since we have become cognizant of the affair, we have managed very quietly to put a spoke in the wheels of some of their worst enterprises, though I am positive they have no suspicion of it. Also, we have put the brake on their propaganda side. They are masters of propaganda, you know, Dick. Have you ever considered what a diabolical weapon that can be? Using all the channels of modern publicity to poison and warp men's minds? It's the most dangerous thing on earth. You can see it cleanly, as I think on the whole we did in the war. But you can use it to establish the most damnable lies. Happily, in the long run, it defeats itself, but only after it has sawed the world with mischief. Look at the Irish. They are the cleverest propagandist extent and manage to persuade most people that they were a brave, generous, humorous, talented, warm-hearted race, cruelly yoked to a dull, mercantile England, when God knows they were exactly the opposite. Matt Giveaway, I may remark, is an Ulster man and has his prejudices. About the gang, I suppose they're all pretty reasonable to an outward view. Highly respectable, he said. I met one of them at dinner the other night at S. He mentioned the name of a member of government. Before Christmas, I was at a cover shoot in Suffolk and one of the worst had the stand next to me, an uncommonly agreeable fellow. Then we sat down to business. Matt Giveaway's idea was that I should study the details of the thing and then get alongside some of the people. He thought I might begin with Shropshire Squire. He fancied that I might stumble upon something which would give me a line on the hostages, for he stuck to his absurd notion that I had a special flair, which the amateur sometimes possessed and the professional lacked. I agreed that that was the best plan, and arranged to spend Sunday in his room going over the secret dossiers. I was beginning to get keen about the thing, for Matt Gilleray had a knack for making whatever he handled as an interesting game. I had meant to tell him about my experiments with Glaring Slade, but after what he had shown me, I felt that that story was absurdly thin and unpromising. But as I was leaving, I asked him casually if he knew Mr. Dominic Medina. He smiled. Why do you ask? He's scarcely your line of country. I don't know. I've heard a lot about him, and I thought I would rather like to meet him. I barely know him, but I must confess that the few times I've met him, I was enormously attracted. He's the handsomest being alive. So I'm told, and that's the only thing that puts me off. It wouldn't if you saw him. He's not in the least the ordinary matinee idol. He's the only fellow I ever heard of who was adored by women and also liked by men. He's a first-class sportsman and said to be the best shot in England after his magistry. He's a common man in politics, too, 
and a most finished speaker. I once heard him, and though I take very little stock in oratory, he almost had me on my feet. He has knocked a bit about the world, and he is also a very good poet, though that wouldn't interest you. I don't know why you say that, I protested. I'm getting rather good at poetry. Oh, I know, Scott and Malcolay and Tennyson, but that's not Medina's line. He is a deity of Lejeunes and a hearty innovator. Jolly good, too. The man's a fine classical scholar. Well, I hope to meet him soon, and I'll let you know my impression. I had posted my letter to Medina, enclosed Greenslade's introduction on my way from the station, and next morning I found a very civil reply from him at my club. Greenslade had talked of our common interest in big-game shooting, and he professed to know all about me and be anxious to make my acquaintance. He was out of town, unfortunately, for the weekend, he said, but suggested that I should lunch with him on Monday. He named a club, a small, select, old-fashioned one of which most of the members were hunting squires. I looked forward to meeting him with a quite inexplicable interest, and on Sunday, when I was worrying through the papers in Malgibre's room, I had him in the back of my mind. I had made a picture of something between an Oida guardsman and the Apollo Belvedere and rigged it out in the smartest clothes. But when I gave my name to the porter at the club door and a young man who was warming his hands at the hall fire came forward to me, I had to wipe that picture clean off my mind. He was about my own height, just under six feet, and at the first sight rather slightly built, but a hefty enough fellow to eyes which knew to where to look for the points of men's strengths. Still he appeared slim, and therefore young, and you could see from the way he stood and walked that he was as light on his feet as a rope dancer. There was a horrible word in the newspapers well-groomed, applied to men by lady journalists, which always makes me think of a glossy horse on which a stable boy has been busy with the brush and curry comb. I had thought of him as well-groomed, but there was nothing glossy about his appearance. He wore a rather old, well-cut brown tweed suit with a soft shirt and collar and a russet tie that matched his complexion. His get-up was exactly that of a country squire who had come up to town for a day at Tattersall. I find it difficult to describe my first impression of his face, for my memory is all overlaid with other impressions acquired when I looked at it in very different circumstances. But my chief feeling, I remember, was that it was singularly pleasant. It was very English and yet not quite English. The coloring was a little warmer than sun or weather would give, and there was a kind of silken graciousness about it not uncommon 
we found in our countrymen it was beautifully cut every feature regular and yet there was a touch of ruggedness that saved it from conventionality i was puzzled about this till i saw that it came from two things the hair and the eyes their hair was almost a dark brown brushed in a wave above the forehead so that the face with its strong fine chin made an almost perfect square but the eyes were the thing they were a startling blue not the pale blue which is common enough and belongs to our norse ancestry but a deep dark blue the color of a sapphire indeed if you think a sapphire with the brilliance of a diamond you get a pretty fair notion of those eyes they would have made a plain-headed woman lovely in a man's face which had not a touch of the feminine they were startling startling i stick to that word but also entrancing he greeted me as if he had been living for this hour and also with a touch of deference due to a stranger this is delightful sir richard it was very good of you to come we've got a table to ourselves by the fire i hope you're hungry i've had a devilish cold journey this morning and i want my luncheon i was hungry enough and i never ate a butter meal he gave me burgundy on account of the bite in the weather and afterwards i had a glass of the bristol cream for which his club was famous but he drank water himself there were four other people in the room all of whom he appeared to call by their christian names and these lantern-jawed hunting fellows seemed to cheer up at the sight of him but they didn't come and stand beside him and talk which is apt to happen with your popular man there was that about medina which was at once friendly and aloof the air of simple but tremendous distinction i remember we began by talking about rifles i had done a good deal of shikar in my time and i could see that this man had a wide experience and had the love of the thing in his bones he never bragged but by dropping little remarks showed what a swell he was we talked of a new 240 bore which had a remarkable stopping power and i said that i had never used it on anything more formidable than a scotch stag it would have been a godsend to me in the old days on the ungui where i had to lug about a 500 express that broke my back he grinned ruefully the old days he said we've all had them and we're all sick to get them back sometimes i'm tempted to kick over the traces and be off to the wilds again i'm too young to settle down and you sir richard must feel the same do you ever regret that the beastly old war is over i can't say i do i'm a middle-aged man now and soon i'll be stiff in the joints I've settled down in the Cotswolds, and though I hope to get a lot of sport before I die, I'm not looking for any more wars. I'm positive the Almighty meant for me to farm.
He laughed. I wish I knew what he meant me for. It looks like some sort of politician. Oh, you, I said. You're the fellow with twenty talents. I've only one. I'm jolly well going to bury it in the soil. I kept wondering how much help I would get out of him. I liked him enormously, but somehow I didn't yet see his cleverness. He was just an ordinary good fellow of my own totem, just another as Tom Green slayed. It was a dark day, and the firelight silhouetted his profile, and as I stole glances at it, I was struck by the shape of his head. The way he brushed his hair in front and back made it look square. But I saw that it was really round, the roundest head I've ever seen except in the Kaffir. He was evidently conscious of it and didn't like it, so took some pains to conceal it. All through luncheon I watched him covertly, and I could see that he was also taking stock of me. Very friendly these blue eyes were, but very shrewd. He suddenly looked me straight in the face. You won't vegetate, he said. You needn't deceive yourself. You haven't got that kind of mouth for a rustic. What is it to be? Politics, business, travel, you're well off? Yes, for my simple taste I'm rather rich, but I haven't the ambition of a maggot. No, you haven't, he looked at me steadily. If you don't mind my saying it, you have too little vanity. Oh, I'm quick at detecting vanity. And anyhow, it's a thing that defies concealment. But I imagine, indeed I know, that you can work like a beaver, and that your loyalty is not the kind that cracks. You won't be able to help yourself, Sir Richard. You'll be caught up in some machine. Look at me. I swore two years ago never to have a groove. And I'm in a deep one already. England is made up of grooves, and the only plan is to select a good one. I suppose yours is politics, I said. I suppose it is a dingy game as it's played at present. But there are possibilities. There is a mighty Tory revival in sight and it will want leading. The newly enfranchised classes, especially the women, will bring it about. The suffragists didn't know what a tremendous force of conservationism they were releasing when they won the vote for their sex. I should like to talk to you about these things some day. In the smoking room, we got back to sport and he told me the story of how he met Greenslade in Central Asia. I was beginning to realize that the man's reputation was justified, for there was a curious mastery about his talk, a careless power as if everything came easily to him and was just taken in his stride. I had meant to open up the business, which had made me seek his acquaintance, but I did not feel the at atmosphere right for it. I did not know him well enough yet, and I felt that if I once started on those ridiculous three facts, 
which were all I had, I must make a clean breast of the whole thing, and take him fully into my confidence. I thought the time was scarcely ripe for that, especially as we would meet again. Are you any chance free on Thursday? he asked as we parted. I would like to take you to dine at the Thursday Club. You're sure to know some of the fellows, and it's a pleasant way of spending an evening. That's capital. Eight o'clock on Thursday, short coat and black tie. As I walked away, I made up my mind that I had found the right kind of man to help me. I liked him, and the more I thought of him, the more impression deepened of a big reservoir of power behind his easy grace. I was completely fascinated, and the proof of it was that I went off to the nearest booksellers and bought his two slim volumes of poems. I cared far more about poetry than Mount Gibberay imagined. Mary had done a lot to educate me, but I hadn't been very fortunate in my experiments with the new people. But I understood Medina's verses well enough. They were very simple, with a delicious, subtle tune in them, and they were desperately sad. Again and again came the note of regret and transience and disillusioned fortitude. As I read them that evening, I wondered how a man who had apparently such zest for life and got so much out of the world should be so lonely at heart. It might be a pose, but there was nothing of the conventional despair of the callow poet. This was the work of one as wise as Ulysses and as far wandering. I didn't see how he would want to write anything but the truth. A pose is a consequence of vanity, and I was pretty clear that Medina was not vain. Next morning I found his cadence still running in my head, and I could not keep my thoughts off him. He fascinated me as a man fascinated by a pretty woman. I was glad to think he had taken a liking for me, for he had done far more than Greenslade's casual introduction demanded. He had made a plan for us to meet again, and he had spoken not as an acquaintance but as a friend. Very soon I decided that I would get Matt Gilray's permission to take him wholly into our confidence. It was no good keeping a man like that at arm's length and asking him to solve puzzles presented as meaninglessly as an acrostic in the newspaper. He must be told all or nothing, and I was certain that if he were told all, he would be a very tower of strength to me. The more I thought of him, the more I was convinced of his exceptional brains. I lunched with Mr. Julius Victor in Carlton House Terrace. He was carrying on an ordinary life, and when he greeted me, he never referred to the business which had linked us together. Or rather, he only said one word. I knew I could count on you, he said. I think I told you that my daughter was engaged to be married this spring, while her fiancé has come from France and will be staying for an indefinite time with me. He can probably do nothing to assist you, but he is here at your call if you want him. 
He is the Marquis de la Tour Dupin. I didn't quite catch the name. And it was a biggish party. We sat down to luncheon before I realized who the desolated lover was. It was my ancient friend Turpin, who had been a liaison officer with my old division. I had known that he was some kind of grandee, but as everybody went by nicknames, I had become used to think of him as Turpin, a version of his title invented, I think, by Archie Roylance. There he was, sitting opposite me, a very handsome, pallid young man, dressed with that excessive correctness found only among Frenchmen who get their clothes in England. He had been a tremendous swashbuckler when he was with the division, unbridled in speech, volcanic in action, but always with a sad gentleness in his air. He raised his heavy lidded eyes and looked at me, and then, with a word of apology to his host, marched around the table and embraced me. I felt every kind of a fool, but I was mighty glad all the same to see Turpin. He had been a good pal of mine, and the fact that he had been going to marry Miss Victor seemed to bring my new job in line with other parts of my life. But I had no further speech with him, for I had conversational women on both sides of me, and in the few minutes while the men were left alone at table, I fell into talk with an elderly man on my right who proved to be a member of the cabinet. I found that out by a lucky accident, for I was lamentably ill-informed about the government of our country. I asked him about Medina, and he brightened up at once. Can you place him? he asked. I can't. I'd like to classify my fellow men. But he is a new specimen. He is as exotic as the young Disraeli, and as English as the late Duke of Devonshire. The point is, he has a policy, something he wants to achieve, and he has the power of attracting a party to him. If he has these two things, there is no doubt about his future. Honestly, I'm not quite certain. He has very great talents, and I believe if he wanted, he would be in the front rank as a public speaker. He has the ear of the house, too, though he doesn't often address it. But I'm never sure how much he cares about the whole business. And England, you know, demands wholeheartedness in her public men. She will follow blindly the second rate, if he is in earnest, and reject the first rate, if he is not. I said something about Medina's view of a great Tory revival, based upon the women. My neighbor grinned. I dare say he's right, and I dare say he could whistle women any way he pleased. It's extraordinary, the charm he has for them. That handsome face of his and that melodious voice would enslave anything female from a charwoman to a Cambridge intellectual. Half his power, of course, comes from the fact that they have no charm for him. He is as aloof as Sir Galahad from any interest in the sex. Did you ever hear his name coupled with a young woman's? 
He goes everywhere, and they would give their heads for him. And all the while he is as insensitive as a nice eaten boy, whose only thought is getting into the eleven. You know him? I told him very slightly. Same with me. I've only a nodding acquaintance, but one can't help feeling the man everywhere and being acutely interested. It's lucky he's a sound fellow. If he were a rogue, he could play the devil with our easygoing society. That night, Sandy and I dined together. He had come back from Scotland in good spirits, for his father's health was improving. And when Sandy was in good spirits, it was like being on the downs in a southwest wind. We had so much to tell each other that we let our food grow cold. He had to hear all about Mary and Peter John and what I knew of Blenkiron and a dozen other old comrades. I had to get a sketch, the merest of sketch, of his doings since the armatists in the east. Sandy, for some reason, was at the moment disinclined to speak of his past. But he was as ready as an undergraduate to talk of his future. He meant to stay at home now, for a long spell at any rate, and the question was how he should fill up his time. Country life's no good, he said. I must find a profession, or I'll get into trouble. I suggested politics, and he rather liked the notion. I might be bored in Parliament, he reflected, but I should love the rough and tumble of an election. I only took part in one, and I discovered surprising gifts as a demagogue, and made a speech in our little town, which is still talked about. The chief row was about Irish home rule, and I thought I'd better have a whack at the Pope. Has it ever struck you, Dick, that the ecclesiastical language has a most sinister sound? I knew some of the words, though not their meaning. But I knew that my audience would be just as ignorant. So I had a magnificent peroration. Will you men of Kilclavers, I ask, endure to see such a chasuble set up in your marketplace? Will you have your daughters sold into simony? Will you have celibacy practiced in the public streets? Gad, I had them all on their feet bellowing. Never! He also rather fancied business. He had a notion of taking up civil aviation and running a special service for transporting pilgrims from all over the Muslim world to Mecca. He reckoned that the present average cost to the pilgrim at not less than 30 euros, and believed that he could do it for an average of 15 euros, and show a handsome profit. Blenkiron, he thought, might be interested in the scheme and put up some of the capital. But later, in a corner of the upstairs smoking room, Sandy was serious enough when I began to tell him the job I was on, for I didn't need McGivray's permission to make a confidant of him. He listened in silence, 
while I gave him the main lines of the business that I had gathered from Matt Kilray's papers, and he made no comment when I came to the story of the three hostages. But when I explained my disinclination to stir out of my country rut, he began to laugh. It's a queer thing how people like us get a sudden passion for coziness. I feel it myself coming over me. What stirred you up in the end? The little boy? Then, very lamely, I shyly began on the rhymes in Greenslade's memory. That interested him acutely. Just the sort of sensible, nonsensical notion you'd have, Dick. Go on, I'm thrilled. But when I came to Medina, he exclaimed sharply, You've met him? Yesterday at luncheon. You haven't told him anything? No, but I'm going to. Sandy had been deep in an armchair with his legs over the side, but now he got up and stood with his arms on a mantelpiece, looking into the fire. I'm going to take him into my full confidence, I said, when I've spoken to Matt Giveaway. Matt Giveaway will no doubt agree. And you, have you ever met him? Never, but of course I've heard of him. Indeed, I don't mind telling you that one of my chief reasons for coming home was a wish to see Medina. You'll like him tremendously. I've never met such a man. So everyone says. He turned his face, and I could see that it had fallen into that portentous gravity, which was one of Sandy's moods, and the compliment to his ordinary insouciance. When are you going to see him again? I'm dining with him the day after tomorrow at a thing called the Thursday Club. Oh, he belongs to that, does he? So do I. I think I'll give myself the pleasure of dining also. I asked about the club, and he told me that it had been started after the war by some of the people who had queer jobs and wanted to keep together. It was a very small, only twenty members. There were Colat, one of the Q-boat VCs, and Pew of the Indian Secret Service, and the Duke of Burminister and Sir Arthur Warcliffe, and several soldiers, all more or less well-known. They elected me in 1919, said Sandy, but of course I've never been to a dinner. I say, Dick, Medina must have a pretty strong pull here to be a member of the Thursday, though it says as it shouldn't. It's a show most people would give their right hand to be in. He sat down again and appeared to reflect with his chin on his hand. You're under the spell, I suppose, he said. Utterly. I'll tell you how he strikes me. Your ordinary, very clever man is apt to be a bit bloodless and priggish, while your ordinary sportsman and good fellow is inclined to be a bit narrow. Medina seems to me to combine all the virtues and none of the faults of both kinds. Anybody can see he's a sportsman, and you've only to ask the swells to discover how high they put his brains. He sounds rather too good to be true. I seem to detect a touch of acidity in his voice. Dick, he said, looking very serious, I want you to promise to go slow in this business. 
I mean about telling Medina. Why, I ask, have you anything against him? No, he said, I haven't anything against him, but he's a little incredible, and I would like to know more about him. I had a friend who knew him. I've no right to say this, and haven't any evidence, but I've a sort of feeling that Medina didn't do him any good. What was his name, I ask, and was told Levator, and when I inquired what had become of him, Sandy didn't know. He had lost sight of him for two years. At that I laughed heartily, for I could see what was the matter. Sandy was jealous of this man, who was putting a spell on everybody. He wanted his old friends to himself. When I taxed him with it, he grinned and didn't deny it. End of chapter 4